All right, let me, uh, let me mention, we are moving on today, and, and we're moving into the book of Acts today. So if you didn't know, we, we did finish the gospel according to Matthew. It took us about a year and a half, but we got done with it. And so we're now we're, we're going to move into the book of Acts. And let me just start by saying that, that uh, I am I'm really thankful for the opportunity to teach this class. I mean, to me, this is, this is really special to be able to come every week and and talk about the scriptures, and, and uh, uh, so it, it actually means a lot to me, and, and um, I appreciate your attentiveness. The book of Acts is, is uh, it's a book of history. It's a history book, and it's, it was written as a historical account. It's not intended to be doctrinal. In other words, there are some portions of doctrine, like we're going to learn about in Acts chapter 15, some things that came down in early church decisions where they were instructing the other churches. So this council in Jerusalem came and they came with specific instruction for the other churches. That's doctrine. But the majority of this book is historical. It was written by Luke. And if you look in in verse 1, Acts chapter 1, verse 1, The first account I composed, Theophilus, about all that Jesus began to do and teach until the day when he was taken up to heaven. And after he had, he had, by the Holy Spirit, given orders to the apostles whom he had chosen. To these he also predestined, he also presented himself alive after his suffering by many convincing proofs, appearing to them over a period of forty days and speaking of the things concerning the kingdom of God. So you see, he says in verse 1, the first account I composed, Theophilus, about all that Jesus began to do and teach. Well, what's the first account he's talking about? He's talking about the gospel according to Luke. And if you look in Luke chapter 1, you'll see it says, Luke chapter 1, verse 1, Inasmuch as many have undertaken to compile an account of the things accomplished among, among us, just as they, handed, they were handed down to us by those who from the beginning were eyewitnesses and servants of the word, it seemed fitting for me as well, having investigated everything carefully from the beginning, to write it out for you in consecutive order, most excellent Theophilus, so that you may know exactly the truth about the things you have been taught. So, Luke is actually a physician by training, which means that he had to, there were only three, three schools in, 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 in the entire, in the entire uh, Roman world of, of, of medicine, and he was at one of those schools, but he was also a historian. And he wrote this gospel according to Luke. It is, only the, it is the only gospel of the four that is written in consecutive chronological order. The other three were never intended to be in chronological order. This one, he says that it is given to you in consecutive order. So Luke was written in consecutive order, and Acts is primarily written in consecutive order as well. He calls him Most Excellent Theophilus, and that is a a title, and that's the same kind of title that was used by Josephus, the historian, to the the man who who, uh, uh, was the underwriter, the one who funded the writing of, of the writings of Josephus. So Theophilus was probably the one who funded the writing of the book of Luke because there weren't publishers in those days that that would pay for this. There were wealthy people that would pay for this. And so now Luke in the book of Acts is writing an historical account. 
And it is separate from doctrine. And by that I mean, it's very hard to build theology and to build doctrine on an historical account. And it was not made to be so. And I'll give you an example. Uh, the children of Israel, in, in the book of Exodus, there's a historical account of the things that took place. And they come to the Red Sea as they're, they're fleeing from Pharaoh. The Red Sea parts and they go through. That is something historical that has occurred. But not every Jew that ever walks up to the Red Sea has the sea part in front of them. Right? That happened on one occasion. It was an act within history. If a Jew were to walk up to the Red Sea today and expect the Red Sea to part, they'd be waiting a long time because I bet it won't part. So to build up a theology that when a group of Jews walks up to the Red Sea and a staff is raised, the sea is going to part, is probably not a very good theology because we can't, we can't build a theology or a doctrine upon that. That's something historical that has taken place. I'll give you, I'll give you a, a, another, you, you know, so, something else here that, that for example, it says, uh, uh, when, they, when they were gathered together in the upper room, it says that, that they were waiting and the Holy Spirit came upon them. But it actually says Jesus had told them that they were to wait in Jerusalem. They were to tarry in Jerusalem. And so, many times people will have what they'll call a tarrying service and wait for the Holy Spirit to come. But in that verse, it says you are to wait, not just wait, not just tarry, but tarry in Jerusalem. But to build a a, a theology that if we tarry, the Holy Spirit will, will fill this place in the same way that it filled this place in the book of Acts probably won't take place. Now, I'll give you an example of something historically that took place in this book that was also then shared by Paul in Romans chapter 1, so it becomes now doctrine. And what we find is that Paul, even though Paul was the apostle, it says, to the Gentiles, Paul was given the apostleship to the Gentiles. No matter what city he went into, he always first took the gospel to the Jews in the synagogue. So here was the one who God raised up as the apostle to the Gentiles. The scriptures say, Paul says it himself, that he is the apostle to the Gentiles. But every city that he would go into, he would first take the gospel to the Jews. That then becomes doctrine, not because he did it many times, but because in the book of Romans, in the epistle to the Romans, Romans in chapter 1, it says the gospel is first to the Jews and then to the Gentiles, then to the Romans, then to the Greeks. The gospel was first to the Jews. And so then it becomes doctrine that the gospel must first go out to the Jews. And some may argue, well, the, the gospel was taken to the Jews, they rejected it, and so now it goes to the Gentiles first. Then Why? after the Jews rejected the gospel time and time again, to Paul, specifically, then the next city he'd go into, he'd bring it first to the Jews. And then he'd, when he returned to that city, he'd bring it to the Jews. Why is that? So, in other words, it becomes a doctrine then 
when it's taught that this is a practice that ought to occur, rather than just an historical event. So there are at, this is primarily things in history that take place. We will see, for example, Paul, one of the things that happens is, is uh, supernatural works occur both through Peter and through Paul. What you see occurring first with Peter occurs in very like manner with Paul. Peter, predominantly to the Jews. Paul, predominantly to the Gentiles. Peter meets up with a sorcerer. Paul meets up with a sorcerer. Peter casts out a demon. Paul casts out a demon. Peter has an unusual miracle occur where even when he's walking by, his shadow goes over sick people. They are healed in the book of Acts. Paul, his handkerchief, just his handkerchief, goes and is used and touched to sick people, and they are healed. You know, because Paul, remember, is a tent maker. Paul has a ministry that, where he underwrites it himself, where he makes tents for a while, gathers up money, and goes out and ministers. He's a tent maker. The tent, tent maker ministry he has. And that's how we get our terminology. Paul couldn't be walking around all the time like Peter could. He had to make tents a lot. So he would just hand out his, his, his handkerchief and here, say, take this. And, and, uh, um, and they'd use it, and it worked. So when you have a tent-making ministry, actually what God does, and this is really important for me to hear, is that God actually amplifies your time. You know, sometimes I wonder, if I were in full-time ministry, I could spend a lot more time reading the Scriptures and preparing my messages. And, you know, I hear about these pastors, you know, they dedicate three days a week just to study the Scriptures for their message on Sunday. And I think, wow, how wonderful that might be. But I'm not a pastor. I don't have that sort of time. So you know what God does? He doesn't say, oh, because you're a pastor and you don't devote that sort of time, I'm not going to anoint your message. No, what he does is he anoints my time so that the time that I have between making tents, he amplifies. And he gives me more grace in that time for the message that I have to give. You see, what he, you see the, the principle there that we see. And so Paul, because he's so busy making tents and he's wiping his head over all the time because he's making tents, he's just, here, take this. I haven't got time to go to that city and pray for that sick person. Just take this, this handkerchief and they'll be healed. So you see this parallel that goes on, but you see these unusual acts that also occur. The other thing that we're going to see is this. Throughout the Old Testament, there is demonic activity, but it is not well defined and you don't see it often. You see it, but you don't see it often. Once you hit the New Testament in the Gospels, there's like this infusion of demonic activity. Almost every page, they're running into demons. Lots of them. Demons all over around Jesus. Happens throughout the four Gospels. You see it. You cannot get away from demonic activity. But then comes the book of Acts. And it normalizes back to about the level you see in the Old Testament. You don't see a lot of de demonic activity. You see some. Demons are cast out a couple of times, but not much. You don't see, you know, legions of demons jumping into herds of swine and then going off over the cliff. You don't see lots of demonic people. And you, you wonder, what's going on? All of a sudden... In the Gospels, there's all this demonic activity. And then you go to the book of Acts, and throughout the rest of the Scriptures, there's not that much demonic activity anymore. 
And then that becomes clear, actually, actually that becomes more clear in, in the book of Revelation, in Revelation chapter 12. It talks about how when the Son is born, particularly in verse 9, that, that Satan is cast down to earth with all his demons. And so there's this big influx of demonic activity on earth, and particularly around Jesus, to thwart the crucifixion. To thwart what is going to occur. So Jesus is constantly dealing with demons. But once Jesus is victorious in that, they're not going to come back to earth until the second coming. They're going to try to thwart the second coming like they tried to thwart the first coming. But we don't see the level of demonic activity today that we saw in the Gospels. The level of demonic activity that we see today is probably commensurate with the level of demonic activity we see in the book of Acts, which is similar to the demonic activity level that we see in the Old Testament. And so it keeps us from falling into this trap of when in doubt, cast it out. We don't see that much these days. Not that demonic activity isn't there, and I've dealt with it, and I've talked about it in this class, some of the occasions. But not all sickness is demonic activity based. Not all psychological sickness is demonic activity based. And I'll, I'll give you a chemistry lesson now. I am amazed at, at, at how normal most of us are. And by that I mean, you can take, you can take the world's biggest pacifist and you change the, the chemical balance within their brain just ever so slightly and they'll become a mass murderer. The same person. You change the chemical balance just slightly. We teeter on the edge of becoming serial killers. We really do. Chemically. But there's this balance that's regulated within our brains. You mess this up just slightly. And you can, you can take a perfectly normal person and make them just go crazy. And this happens. Sometimes there's hormonal chemical imbalances that occur. And, and, and these things are merely chemical imbalances. They're not, huh, a demon must have come upon them and taken over their life. No, it's a chemical imbalance and we have ways of, thankfully, that we can stabilize that now. Sometimes God heals through prayer. Sometimes He heals through medication. And we can balance those things out now. Now, that's not to say that, that there is no demonic activity which pe causes people to do dumb things and, 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 and abusive things. There is. But to just lump it all to, to demons isn't right because the level of demonic activity that we see throughout the rest of the Scriptures, starting in the book of Acts in the New Testament church, is not the level that we see in the Gospels. And for good reason. Because there's not that much activity. It was all concentrated. Can you imagine Satan and all his demons leaving all the places in the universe where they might function, or if they're functioning and restricted to this earth, cast into one city, into one location. And there Jesus had to deal with all of this. And you go to Jerusalem these days, and it kind of looks like some of them never even left. Because... There's more craziness that goes on there than any other city I know of. And it's just, you know, because everybody who is on some religious mission feels that they've got to end up in Jerusalem. 
And so it all just piles up there. And, and so you, you, you've, got, you've got demonic activity and you've got psychological problems there. Lots of them. It's just, just, that was just an observation. <laughs> all right. So, so the book of Acts is primarily historical and we're going to read historical events that take place and we can't then say, ah, look, that took place in the book of Acts. Therefore, that's the way the church ought to be. No, that was a particular event that took place. It does not become doctrine. It does not become a theology that we hang our hat on and say this is the way it ought to be until we read about that in the epistles where there's all this instruction to the churches that's teaching us what to do, what the church should do. Okay, so, uh, picking up in Acts chapter, chapter 1, verse 1 again. The first account I composed, Theophilus, about all that Jesus began to do and teach until the day when he was taken up into heaven, after he had by the Holy Spirit given orders to the apostles whom he had chosen. Okay, so you see in verse 1 it says, My first account was about all that Jesus began to do and teach. Began to do and teach tells us that Jesus is not done doing and teaching. It's just that he's not doing it himself anymore. He's doing it through the body of Christ, through his representatives here on earth and through the work of the Holy Spirit. But it began there in the Gospels until the day when he was taken up to heaven, after he had by the Holy Spirit given orders to the apostles whom he had chosen. So he gave the apostles orders. One of his orders to them was to tarry, to wait in Jerusalem for the Holy Spirit that was about to come upon them. To these he also presented himself alive after his suffering by many convincing proofs. And the word here, convincing proofs, is very strong. Jesus presented himself alive. There was all this proof. Touch me. Go ahead, put your finger in the holes in my hands. Put your hand into the hole in my side. Watch me eat. Many convincing proofs. He showed them himself. And he appeared to them over a period of 40 days. And this is the only indication that we have of how long Jesus walked on this earth after His resurrection. It's right here, 40 days. It doesn't tell us in the Gospels. It only tells us here that He walked on earth 40 days and speaking of the things concerning the kingdom of God. So He continued to teach of the things concerning the kingdom of God after His resurrection. Same thing, He was teaching them. We read about that, for example, on the road to Emmaus in the Gospels. He was teaching them. When he meets with them, he begins to teach them about the things of the kingdom of God. We just have little snippets of what he taught. We know that there are appearances. There's, there's about ten appearances of his documented in the scriptures, but there may have been many more over that 40-day that, uh, uh, period. And he was teaching them and instructing them in the Gospels. And, and it even tells us, in John's Gospel, John tells us what we've written here is just a little portion of all that Jesus did and taught. And if we wrote about all the miracles, all the books in the world couldn't even contain it, John said. So all we have is just a portion of what Jesus did. But he showed them by many convincing proofs. You want proof? He showed us. And speaking of the things concerning the kingdom of God, verse 4, gathering them together, he commanded them not to leave Jerusalem, but to wait for what the Father had promised, which he said, you heard from me. So what did he do? He gathered, he, he, he gathered them together and he commanded them, don't leave Jerusalem. 
He probably commanded them more than once because they had a habit of never listening. Remember how many times we read about how he told them, Go, when I rise from the dead, meet me in the Galilee. And they never went. Until much later, after they had seen him and said, Oh yeah, he really is alive. Maybe we ought to go there. But they were supposed to have gone there first and waited for him. And so he commanded them, Don't leave Jerusalem. I don't want you to miss this. The Holy Spirit is coming. Don't leave Jerusalem. He says, I want you to come. Don't leave Jerusalem. Wait there. And remember, if you're going to have a tarrying thing and, 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 and think that the Holy Spirit's going to fall on you just like He fell, you've got to do this in Jerusalem because it's part of the verse. It says, tarry in Jerusalem. You can't just take a part and think. And even if you tarry in Jerusalem, it's, it's probably not going to happen like it happened on the first day because that was an historical event. It wasn't doctrine that whenever you do this, this will happen. The Scriptures have plenty of doctrine for us. Respecting authority. Respecting authority. When you do this, it will go well for you. That will always occur. In the end, it will go well for you when you respect authority. It will go a whole lot better for you if you respect authority than if you don't. I guarantee you, try it any time. Go up to authority and curse them out. And go up to some other authority and bless them. And tell me which one went better for you. It's going to work every time. Alright, he says, um, he says, which, he says, but to wait for the, for the, uh, wait for what the Father had promised, which he said, you heard from me. For John baptized with water, but you will be baptized with the Holy Spirit. Not many days from now. So you're going to be baptized with the Holy Spirit not many days from now. In the Old Testament, the Spirit was given to some people. That Spirit gave them Scripture illumination. And that's exactly what was given to them in John chapter 20 and in Luke chapter 24. It says, He breathed upon them the Holy Spirit. And then in Luke chapter 24, it says that that He opened their minds to understand the Scriptures. So they had the type of illumination. Prior to this, this magnificent act of the Holy Spirit coming down upon them in, in Acts chapter 2, prior to this, they already had the Spirit as was given in the Old Testament for illumination of the Scriptures. Their minds were open to illumination of the Scriptures. But there was a new promise of the Holy Spirit that was coming that was different than any Holy Spirit that was given before. Different in, in, in its purpose. Different in, in its magnitude. If you turn to John chapter 14, many references in John 14, 15, and 16 to this Holy Spirit that's going to be coming. In John chapter 14, verse 16, it says, I will ask the Father, and He will give you another Helper, that He may be with you forever. In John chapter 14, verse 26, But the Helper, the Holy Spirit, whom the Father will send in My name, He will teach you all things and bring to your remembrance all that I said to you. So you wonder how they remembered all these teachings that Jesus had told them? Because the Holy Spirit brought it to their remembrance. Look in in John chapter 15, verse 26. And when the Helper comes, whom I will send to you from the Father, that is the Spirit of truth, who proceeds from the Father, He will testify about Me. And then turn to John chapter 16. John chapter 16, verse 7. But I tell you the truth. 
It is to your advantage that I go away. For if I do not go away, the Helper will not come to you. But if I go, I will send him to you. So you, you see what he says? He says, when I go, the Holy Spirit's going to come. But he's not going to come until I go. So you say, well, what did he give to them in John chapter 20 when he breathed on them the Holy Spirit? He gave them something different, but not what he was about to give them in Acts chapter 2. It was only after he goes that the fullness of the Spirit is, going, is about to come. In John chapter, chapter 16, verse 13. But when he, the Spirit of truth, comes, he will guide you into all truth. For he will not speak on his own initiative, but whatever he hears... He will speak and he will disclose to you what is to come. So you see, the Holy Spirit is actually going to come and be our guide. He's going to come and disclose things to us. This is what the Spirit does. He's going to testify about Jesus. He's going to be our guide. He's going to guide us into all truth. He's going to disclose to us what we need to know and the things that are, that are going to come. The things that we need to know, He will disclose. And that's what He tells us in Acts chapter 1. This is what's going to come upon you. John baptized in water. I'm going to be baptizing you guys in the Holy Spirit. In verse 6, So when they came together, they were asking Him, saying, Lord, is it at this time that you were restoring the kingdom to Israel? Now that is a very natural question. Is it at this time? In light of what Jesus said, Jesus said, I'm going to baptize you with the Holy Spirit not many days from now. And then their question is, is it, is their question is, therefore, because of this, because of what you just said, is it at this time that you're going to restore the kingdom to Israel? But remember what happened, is that there was a promise in the Old Testament, and this is promised in Isaiah 32, Isaiah 44, Ezekiel 39, Joel 2, and Zechariah 12, that when God, when Jesus returns, when the Messiah comes, he will restore the kingdom of Israel. The Holy Spirit will fall upon the nation of Israel and He will restore the Davidic kingdom. Meaning that the Messiah will rule. Remember we discussed this back in, in Matthew chapter 12 and in Matthew chapter 13. In Matthew chapter 12 was the unpardonable sin. When they accused Jesus of being able to do the very works of the Messiah by the moving of, of, of Beelzebul the head of the, the demons. And because they said that Jesus was, was filled with a demon and there was this cursing of the, the Holy Spirit in that, Jesus pronounced upon that generation the unpardonable sin in Matthew chapter 12. And starting in Matthew chapter 13, He never spoke to them without a parable. He only spoke in parables. And in Matthew chapter 13, all of a sudden, he starts speaking in parables. Before that, he never did. His disciples asked him in Matthew chapter 13, why are you speaking in parables? All of a sudden, they had never heard him speak in, they had never heard him speak in a parable before. And he said, it's because it's for you to know and not for them to know. He changed his ministry in Matthew chapter 12 because of the unpardonable sin. And he pronounced upon that generation that they would be destroyed. And that is not upon this generation, can't happen ever again. It was upon those people, that generation. Individuals could be saved out, but it was upon that generation. You could go back on, on, on the internet and look, listen to Matthew 12 and Matthew 13 and, and, and hear about that, because we covered it in some detail. But so you see that there was a kingdom program coming at that point. That kingdom program that was going to take place, Jesus still would have died on the cross, 
but then he would establish his kingdom. There would have been Davidic-type rule. Jesus would have been the king ruling from Jerusalem, the Messiah rule on earth. And so they ask him, is it coming now? Because remember, he had told them in Acts chapter 13, now the mystery kingdom is coming. The mystery kingdom, remember what we learned, the mystery kingdom is something that was not revealed in the Old Testament, that we are still living under now. It's described as the mystery kingdom in the New Testament. Paul describes it as we live in this time of mystery that was not described, but now we live in this. And, and so they said, are you going to restore it now? That's a very natural question. If he says, I'm bringing the Holy Spirit, they say, ah, you're bringing now the kingdom to rule, to, to come here. And remember, what did they promise? Jesus promised them twice. In, in, in Matthew 19, verse 28, and in Luke 22, verse 30, Jesus promised the 12 disciples. He said, 12, the 12 apostles, you guys are going to be reigning on 12 thrones with me. Twelve apostles are going to be reigning on twelve thrones with me. And that's spoken of again in the book of Revelation. So the twelve were asking him, is now the time that we're going to be on this throne reigning with you? Very natural. And Jesus says to them, it is not for you to know the times of the epochs which the Father has fixed of his own authority in Acts 1-7. But you will receive power when the Holy Spirit has come upon you. And you shall be my witness both in Jerusalem and in Judea and in Samaria, and even to the remotest part of the earth. So, you see what he's, they're asking him. They said, is it the time? They don't, they, it's not a question of if. If this is going to take place. That's not a question. It says, when? Whatever has been prophesied in the Scriptures will take place. It's not a question of if. It's a question of when. And that's what they're asking. Is it going to take place now? And he says, no, not now. And it's not for you to know the time. And isn't it interesting that we don't know the time of Jesus' return when he's going to set up that kingdom. But that's the thing that, that all sorts of Christians like to predict. The one thing that Jesus said, it's not for you to know that. We want to know it and predict it. This is, this is just perfect. It's like you, you, you try this with children, it works every time. Take a bath. And you just put something in it. It doesn't matter what you put in it. Put nothing in it. Just roll up the top and say, I don't want you to look in this bag. Don't look in it. I'm going upstairs. Don't look in this bag. Every time, you know, know, look in that bag. The very thing that God tells us, this is not for you to know. They want to predict. This is when He's coming back. And I've heard all sorts of people in the couch, well, you know, it's not going to happen on, on this day. But by 2012, he will have come back. You know, all, all, all of a sudden, you, you, you know, you've put some parameter on this thing. And what did Jesus say? He says that, that, that uh, um, no man knows the day or the hour. So the very day they predict is the day they're not coming. So you can say to them, I'm sure he's not coming on that day. You know, so whatever day they predict... For sure, he's not coming. And actually, many fine Christian teachers have been messed up by this thing. And in some way, you wonder, why are you making this prediction anyway? Is it, is it because then, when it ha- if it happens on that day, now we're all going to bow down to you because you were the one who knew? I mean, it says Jesus, even in his humanity, didn't know. The angels didn't know. So why bother with it? I don't know. I have no idea. Everybody says, well, he's coming in my lifetime. That I know. How do you know? 
Every believer's always thought he's coming, there, he's coming in their lifetime. You look at the New Testament church. They all thought he was coming in their lifetime. And that's why Paul had to say, you know, don't worry about this. The believers who have died, they're going to be raised up and they're going to be in the air before even the live believers be in the air. Because they were upset that some believers were dying before the Lord had returned. All believers always think he's coming in their lifetime. I have no idea if he's coming in my lifetime. Really, no idea. He'll come whenever he wants to come. It's none of my business. If he comes tomorrow, fine. If he comes today, fine. If he comes in in a thousand years, fine. That's up to him. But he's coming again. And and so they ask him, and he says, you know, it's, it's not for you to know when. It's not coming now, but it's not for you to know when. He says, but the Holy Spirit is going to come upon you, and you're going to be my witnesses. This is, this is the theme of this book of Acts. It's witnesses. You're going to be my witnesses. He uses this terminology in, 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 uh, in this verse, verse 1-8, and then again in 122, 2-32, 3-15, 5-32, 10-39, 10-41, and 13-31. All the time, you're going to be my witnesses. My witnesses, my witnesses. This is what the Holy Spirit is for. You want to know what the Holy Spirit is for? It's not for us to sit there and say, Oh, lovely Holy Spirit, now I can go to church and just really enjoy these songs. No, the Holy Spirit was given to be a witness. That's why He was given. He was given for me to be a witness. And this is what I always struggle with. I sit on this airplane and I know I'm supposed to share with this person next to me. I'm there to be a witness. My life is to be a witness. And you, you know, those of you who know me, fairly well may think, well, I know there were some days you weren't a very good witness. Well, duh, that happens a lot more than you think. All right? Just ask my wife. Lots of times I'm not a good witness. Lots of times. But you know the other thing about it is that we pick up and we go on. You look at the life of David. What I admire most about the life of David is here is a guy who committed murder, who committed adultery, had lied about it, had gotten a man killed because he didn't want to expose his adultery, it's exposed to him, he repents, and he's able to get up again and get going again in life and worship God and follow God, and God says, that's a man after my own heart. And you're like, well, God, let me tell you what he did. Maybe you forgot. Because I'm not sure you'd say he's a man after my own heart. Well, God knows what he did. But the amazing thing about David is his relationship with God was so stellar, so close, that even... After that magnitude of a sin, of committing adultery and murder, he gets up and he starts walking with God again. And he writes Psalm 51. And he writes other Psalms of God's forgiveness. And he's used of the Lord mightily. And because our witness fails, that just helps us to remember that we have feet of clay. But God has set us as a witness. And you say, well, you know, I really blew it in front of these people. Go back and apologize. I've apologized to my colleagues who don't know the Lord. You know, I've said things in in, in meetings that I shouldn't have said. And then the next meeting I say, hey, I just want to start off by saying I'm sorry for some of the things that I said at that last meeting. And the things that really bother me, generally, they don't even remember. But because there's a Holy Spirit in me, I know what I said was wrong. And I had to apologize for it. And a lot of times they don't even remember. Sometimes they do, but even when they do, they don't even think it was that big of a thing. A lot of times. But it was a big thing in my life. So what we do is we actually 
be this witness that God has for us. This is what God has us to do. And he says, the witness is to start in Jerusalem and in all Judea and Samaria and even to the remotest part of the earth. So the witness is going to start in Jerusalem. It starts in Acts chapter 2 in Jerusalem, which was the center of Faradag Judaism. The very Judaism that had opposed Jesus. And then it was to spread into Judea, which included the Galilee, which was also within the grasp of this Pharisaic Judaism. And then into Samaria, which was this, this hybrid religion, which was part Judaism, part heathen religion. And it was very, uh, 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 very antagonistic toward the Jews. He says, I want you to take the gospel there. And after you've taken it there, I want you to take it to the remotest part of the earth, which is terminology meaning the Gentile world. Anything beyond that. And this is exactly the order that it happened. And we covered this in the book of Matthew, in the Gospel according to Matthew. That, that God said to Peter, I will grant to you the keys of the kingdom. That which you open will be open. That which you shut will be shut. And so what does he do? He says to Peter, Peter opens the door for the Gospel in Jerusalem. Peter was the one who stood up on the day of Pentecost and opened the Gospel up right there. He was the one who opened it up. The keys were open. Once that door was open, you didn't need Peter anymore. Plenty of testimony. Stephen is testifying there in Jerusalem. Didn't need to have Peter there. Then, then what happens? Peter goes into Samaria. Peter goes into Samaria and preaches. What? Why couldn't Philip the Evangelist deal with it? The Holy Spirit never came in Samaria. Philip the Evangelist went and shared and people believed, but the Holy Spirit never came. But then, they, what do they do? They call Peter. Peter comes to Samaria... He preaches, boom, the Holy Spirit falls on people, the door is open in Samaria, Peter is never needed again in Samaria. People are able to preach the gospel in Samaria, and the Holy Spirit falls. And then after that, God raises up a man named Paul to preach to the Gentiles. But before Paul, in chapter 9 of of Acts, ever preaches the gospel to the Gentiles and has the Holy Spirit fall, what happens? Peter has to go in Acts chapter 10. Preach the gospel to Cornelius, the first Gentiles to receive the Lord. He preaches the gospel, the Holy Spirit falls on them. Boom! The Holy Spirit is open to the Gentiles. Never again is Peter needed for the Gentiles. Paul now can go to the Gentiles and the Holy Spirit begins to fall. God gave the keys to Peter. Once the door was open, it was open and it wasn't going to be shut. Peter wasn't needed anymore. But the gospel was preached specifically in this very order that Jesus said it is to be preached. Jerusalem, Holy Spirit will fall. Judea, Sumeria, to the uttermost part of the earth, to the Gentile world where hedonism and heathenism was confronted. That gospel, even the the apostle that was raised up to preach the gospel to the Gentile world, could not bring the Holy Spirit upon the Gentile world until Peter opened it up. But once he opened it up, boom, Paul could go in. So you see that exactly the way the order that was prescribed is the way that it happened. Exactly the order that it was prescribed. Jesus' work on earth is not done, and it will not be done until He says it's done. And He sends us forth as His witnesses. And that's what we're going to see in this book. It is a delightful book. So much fun when you see what it could be like to walk with the Lord, and what happens on certain instances that isn't particularly doctrine, but it happens. Certain things happen. And when you walk with the Lord, the things that occur, the life that you can have if you walk with the Lord, it is actually a very exciting life when you walk with the Lord. It is so much better than just, you know, growing up and getting a salary, getting a nice car and a nice house and thinking you're going to play golf every Saturday. I mean, that to me has got to be the most boring life. 
Because I know that that house doesn't stay very nice. And that marriage doesn't stay very nice. And the satisfaction with the people that you're around and with your spouse doesn't stay very nice very long without the Lord. And the things that your, your, your children say to you doesn't stay very nice. And the things, the occurrences that happen in life, and you don't always stay healthy. But when you have the Lord, you get a totally new perspective. And you see the difference of walking with the Lord versus walking with mankind. Let's pray. Father, thank You for the Scriptures, for Your Word, which teaches us, which helps us. Lord, I pray that as we go through this book, You illuminate the Scriptures and let us see the things that You have for us. May Your blessing, may Your grace be upon us. Father, so fill us to overflowing from the Scriptures, I pray. And Lord, I give You many, many thanks. In the name of Jesus. Amen.